You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, good morning. If we have, uh, have not had a chance to meet, my name's Adam. I am one of our pastors, and I share some of the teaching and preaching responsibilities. I oversee uh, our preaching and teaching, but we actually have multiple people who lead out in that area. Uh, we believe that that is a more biblically faithful approach. We actually don't have a senior pastor. Um, we operate under what we call plurality, multiple uh, trained and qualified people to lead. Um, so that applies to our decision-making and our preaching and teaching. And so sometimes when you're here, it'll be me. Um, sometimes it'll be some other folks who uh, we trust and are gifted to preach and teach. And we think that keeps, uh, prevents uh, everything being filtered into one personality and one voice in ways that could eventually over time become problematic. And so we have different perspectives uh, as we preach and teach, and we think that's a, a value for us. And uh, it can take some getting adjusted too. If you're not used to that, if you've got a church background, then probably you uh, have not experienced that as the norm. Uh, but I think you can get adjusted to it over time, or at least most folks seem to be able to. So uh, today we're continuing our series. We'll be in Luke chapter 12. If you want to go ahead and get a Bible and turn there, and while you're doing that, I did want to give you an update. I've got a, I got a happy update for you. We, a few months ago, uh, let everybody know that we were running out of space in Kidtown. We have just tons of new families, and then on top of that, new babies that are uh, around and grateful for that. And we uh, were in need of creating some additional space, or we were going to have to start telling toddlers they couldn't come into Kidtown. We are going to have to start turning them away at the door and just let them wander off to do something else for the day. And so... I just said to you that we thought that was a not great option, and what we would prefer to do would be to raise a little bit of money. We needed to raise $30,000 to create some additional space. In, inside of our existing structure, we had a way to create some additional space for toddlers, and I think the way that we rolled it out was we have a giving campaign. We're calling it. We need $30,000 so we don't have to turn away toddlers at Kittown, and I requested that we all respond and just chip in as we are able and that we not have to bring out progress thermometers and make it a big deal. I told you that you did not want those problems and neither did I. And I am most happy to report to you in that, that in just a short time, we did not just raise $30,000, but we raised just over $40,000. And, and uh, construction begins tomorrow. So... That is wonderful. I'm really thankful for you guys, and thanks for everybody who chipped in uh, to give there. Any of that extra we'll save for future Kittown needs. Uh, this will not be the last thing we have to do. This is a, a short-term solution that we think will buy us buy some time. Uh, also, just on a personal note, I'm just so grateful to get to be a part of a church where we can do that. We can just say, hey, here's the need. We think this is our best option. Could we all just kick in and let's keep moving forward on the mission that God has for us? And the way that, that you guys consistently respond to those kinds of things is not lost on me. I'm very appreciative of that. I know that there are, there are pastors in places where they're, they're just crippled by the fact that people do not get behind what the church needs, and they're always begging and pleading and trying to beg, borrow, and steal to get enough resources to get things done. And that's just not been, even, even though we operate with a lower budget than most churches of our size, that has never been an issue here. And when we present needs, you guys respond really well. And I'm just personally very grateful for that and grateful for the lack of thermometers that we have to put up around our building. And all of that is a perfect transition for our topic today. We're talking about generosity. 
So we're doing a series uh, to start the fall where we're talking about God's plan to bring his kingdom to earth and that the means for accomplishing that plan is spirit-filled, mature, compelling disciples of Jesus. What we've been doing is walking through some of what we call our covenant practices that are our missionary member uh, covenant. And we're painting just a baseline picture of what we think it looks like to be a mature Christian, a maturing Christian. So this is a, a vision type series, but not, not a vision type series where we're talking about what we want to become as a church, as a group so much, as, as we're talking about what we want to become as individuals, as individual followers of Jesus. And hopefully so far, we've done an okay job at, at painting the picture as the kind of people that we want to become as we follow Jesus together. And I hope today will also be uh, helpful. That's my aim. It's always my aim when I preach and teach is to be helpful because that's what the Bible says my aim is supposed to be. But especially today, I really I want to be helpful because I think we're up against some things here when we talk about generosity. And Jesus actually attaches a great deal of spiritual power in our lives to our generosity, and the problem is that you and I face, unlike many other societies and cultures that have ever existed and even currently exist, is that we are aggressively shaped to be consumers in our culture. So I think all of this is a much-needed word for us. I would argue that much joy is sapped from our lives because of how much we have been shaped by consumerism. Being a consumer and having gratitude are at odds. You cannot be grateful for your blessings because you never have enough. You can't be content. You're always concerned about whether or not you have enough, what the next thing is. It's this ongoing treadmill where there's this steady anxiousness and discontent that simmers in our souls. And I want to show you today how Jesus says we can be set free. So Luke chapter 12, I did also want to highlight on our website have a ton of extra resources for you. With each of these sermons, today in particular, there are a lot of good uh, things on there. We've got books, we've got some previous sermons and sermon series that we've taught, articles and blog posts. One, uh, one resource is unbelievable. It's a, it's a downloadable budgeting tool where if you put in your income, it will go ahead and auto-fill the chart for you on some recommendations on how you might spend in what categories. And you can go back and change it. It's just a rough draft for you as a starter. So you can know if you're crazy or not for how much you're spending in different categories of your budget. So if you want to spice up your marriage life, that'd be a great conversation around lunch today. Just load that in and have a nice argument over brunch. So all kinds of good stuff there for you. Check those out. Luke chapter 12. The context here is Jesus has been teaching about money and possessions. He is, has just told a story about a man who tried to save up an abundance of things for himself, and he dies, and Jesus says this was very foolish, this, this man's approach to life. And Jesus has been cautioning his followers and all the crowd who's with him to actively be on guard against believing that life consists in the abundance of possessions. That's all set up for Jesus' teaching here in verses 22 through 34. So let's read all of it, and we'll talk for a little bit, and then I think we're going to need to work back through it. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body and what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. 
Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, I love that Jesus calls that a small thing. <laughs> Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He shifts in that moment from speaking to the crowds about not hoarding up possessions to talking to his disciples, and particularly about their worry, their anxiety surrounding possessions, this sort of, do I have enough? Do I have enough to make it? Do I have enough to be content? Many of Jesus' disciples had given up everything in their life to follow Jesus, remember. Some of them had left houses and families and jobs and, and money and Jesus looks at these men and women, many of whom have left everything to follow him, and he says, don't be anxious. And I could see why they'd be anxious. They just left everything behind. Then Jesus says, instead of being anxious, they should give more stuff away. Does that seem unhelpful to you? <laughs> like, if you're there... And you've left everything to follow Jesus. And he says, don't worry about, you know, provision. Just give more stuff away. Is there not a part of you that would look and be like, really? Are you always this helpful or just, just with me? This is not all that dissimilar from you being really, really worried about something and a friend looking at you and just saying, stop worrying. Oh, great. Thanks. I hadn't, hadn't thought of that. Masterful. Jesus' solution, it just seems so counterintuitive, it almost feels ridiculous. How in the world would giving away things, possessions, money, how would that make you more content and less anxious? But I actually think he's on to something very helpful. And I think if we work back through the passage, we can track his logic and see some key that might be lacking in our life. So let's work back through it and see if we can break it down and track what Jesus is actually teaching here. So look back at verse 22 and 23. Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, <clears throat> do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So note the categories here. He gives food and clothing or, or covering. So we can, we can include shelter in this idea. So food and clothing and, and shelter. Paul in 1 Timothy 
actually uses these same categories to expose something for us. Uh, Very, very few people, I don't know if you've noticed this, very few people think that they're rich. Very few people think that they are greedy. We tend to always think that being rich is someone who has more than us, and we're not quite sure what it means to be greedy. We just know it's really bad and therefore definitely not us also. Totally worse than whatever we are. Here's the categories Paul gives in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This was part of our daily scripture reading plan from this past week. We actually read this one and studied this one together here on Wednesday morning. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, But if we have food and clothing, so same categories Jesus gives, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, see how he's creating categories there? Food and clothing, we can be content if we have those, but... Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. What do we need to be content? He says food and clothing. And then what makes someone rich? Having more than food and clothing or coverings, right? So I'm sharing all this because I think it gives us some helpful categories really quickly. First category would be needing, things that you need. That would be survival needs like food and clothing and shelter. And if you have more than you need, the Bible categorizes you as rich. So when the Bible uses the term rich, it's talking about almost every single one of us in the room. We don't just have food to eat, we get to pick what kind of food we will eat. And we don't just have clothes, we pick out the clothes we'd like to wear on that day. That's amazing, and it makes us, biblically speaking, rich. So now for the rest of your life, anytime you read in the Bible anything about a rich person, you need to stop going and thinking, well, that's somebody who has more than I do. And you need to think, oh, that's me, I should listen up. You are rich, biblically speaking. And then there's a category that you might call wanting. So you have needing, then you have wanting. And wanting is potentially... Okay, not necessarily a problem, but if you think a need, I'm sorry, if you think you need something that's actually a want, then the Bible calls you greedy. In other words, if my basic needs are met, but what I currently have is not enough for me to be content, that's greed. And so now when the Bible uses the word greed, you can also know that it's talking about you. It's possible, this is important, it's possible to show off your greed in greater or lesser amounts based upon how much income and resources God gives you. So it's possible for someone to be very wealthy and express their greed in a larger way than you, but you're actually more greedy than they are. You just can't express it as well as they can because you don't have the money to show it off. So this is, uh, this is why Jesus just totally disagrees with the common reaction of, well, if I had more money, I would definitely be more generous. Jesus actually says the exact opposite is true. Whoever is faithful in little is who will be faithful in much. How you handle a little is actually what reveals how you would handle a lot. You're already showing what you would do if you had more resources. So another word for this the Bible uses would be coveting. So greed or coveting. Uh, The idea of coveting is so foundational to life with God. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Coveting means to live with an eye on what God has not given me 
believing that I could be content if only I had it. I'll let you write that down. I'll read it again. Living with an eye on what God has not given me, believing that I could be content if only I had it. So we've got needs, wants, and then greed or coveting. Biblically speaking, greed and coveting are terrible. They destroy individuals and groups and whole societies. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that we just read that it will plunge you into ruin and destruction. Coveting is like a cancer that will eat away at your own soul. It is critical that we know these differences between these categories of needing, wanting, and coveting. And Jesus here is saying, don't be anxious. And he actually says, even about your needs, even about your needs, your need for food and clothing and shelter are legitimate. They're legitimate concerns. And Jesus is saying, don't be swept up in concern about them. Let's continue reading in verse 24. Consider the ravens. So he brings up ravens as an illustration example. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, another example, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? I don't think those verses mean what most people tend to say that they mean. When I've heard this taught before, it's almost like everyone says what Jesus is teaching here is, everything's going to turn out okay for us. Just look at the birds. Nothing bad ever happens to the birds. Look at the grass of the field and its flowers. Everything goes well for the grass. Uh, we almost read it like Jesus is having a Bob Marley moment. So don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. And I think, I think that we are all aware that Bob Marley's peace and settled spirit had very little to do with knowing the God of the grass and a very different kind of grass was involved. <laughs> Jesus is not saying, don't stress out because everything's going to turn out all right. Look back at verse 28 if you don't believe me. In verse 28, he says, If God so clothes the grass, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, he's not saying it's all going to be fine. That is not the promise here. Jesus' point is not that everything turns out okay for birds and grass and flowers. His point is that God gives the birds and grass and flowers everything they need to glorify him. He gives them exactly what they need to do, exactly how he's designed them to do, and when their time is up, their time is up. He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Your days are numbered by God. 
He will give you what you need to glorify him with those numbered days. That's what he's saying. So then in verse 29, he says, do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. And that word seek, is, it has a stronger connotation. It means demand or require. Make it your highest aim in life, as though they are God to you, ultimate to you, highest concern to you. It's this idea of requiring something to have contentment and peace in your soul. And Jesus is saying, do not make this your first concern. God will give you what you need in the time that he gives you to live. That's the promise. All right, let me give you an insight into worry and anxiety. Your worry will always be proportional to how fragile your God is. Your worry will always be proportional to how fragile your God is. To whatever is most important in your life, whatever you place as God in your life, the most critical thing. And if temporary things are the most important things to you, then you will always be worried because you can't always lose them. So if your kids turning out okay is not just something that you want, but it's the thing that you require to have peace in your soul, then you will always be worried because a thousand bad things can happen to your kid every single second. Your anxiety is proportional to how fragile your kids are, and they are quite fragile. So some of us, and probably me included, need a slight twist on the verse that we just read. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your child's life? And if your career going well is the thing that you require in order to have contentment, then it's God to you. And you're always going to have something to worry about because you can always get fired, downsized, passed up, not get noticed. And other people's responses and reactions to your work become critically important. And your job is too fragile for you to seek it or require it for your peace. If your body and appearance and a need to gain a certain response from others become ultimate to you, then you are set up for misery. You're set up for constant anxiety because your body will always change and always age. Listen, time and gravity are undefeated. They are undefeated. And other people's responses and reactions to you will always change over time and you'll die a thousand little deaths before your body even becomes old and gray. If money is what you require in order to have peace and security, then there will never be a cure for your anxiety because how much can ever truly be enough? How can you guard against unforeseen circumstances? What if there's a recession? What if the stock market plummets? What if there's a trade war? How big do the storehouses need to be when they can always get bigger? Your anxiety will always be proportional to how fragile your God is. So seeking or requiring any of these things to have peace is a death sentence for your gratitude and your contentment. Jesus goes on in verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. He says, this is what everyone who doesn't know God chases after. But your father knows that you need them. He says, God, our father knows that we need these things. It's not that they're not important. They are. It's just that they're too small to seek after, to allow our contentment and gratitude to be contingent on them especially when our Father in heaven has promised to give us what we need to glorify him. God, he knows that you need them. 
So there was a time in my life when I was completely free of worry and stress and anxiety. I didn't think about what I would eat later. Would there be food? I didn't, I didn't fret about having a place to sleep or clothes to wear. And worry about the bills getting paid. Just totally stress free. I was three years old. <laughs> Just living my best life, man. <laughs> and you could say that my sense of peace and calm and a lack of worry was because I was naive. I didn't know how hard it is to scratch out a living. I didn't know how difficult life in a broken and fallen world can be. And that's true. That's true. I would also say there was another reason why I had no worries and no anxieties in my life at age three. It was because I knew my dad was worried about that stuff for me. I didn't have to think what I was going to eat. I knew he'd bring something home. I didn't have to worry about what I was going to wear. My dad was worried about that. I just knew it was his job to worry about those things. It wasn't mine. And I knew he loved me, and I knew he would do whatever it took to make sure that I had what I needed for that day. And what Jesus says here is that God knows what you need. It's not that you don't need stuff. It's not that you don't need provision. It's not that you don't need food and clothing and shelter. You do. But our, our anchor of rest for our soul is that we have a heavenly Father who has promised he will take care of us. This is a blood-bought promise. Jesus died so that you could have this promise on your life, so that every night you get to lay all of your concerns in front of God the Father and say, God, you promised that you would give me what I need to glorify you. You promised. Martin Luther used to say, pray and let God worry. I love that. Pray and let God worry. God, here's everything going on. You promised you would get me through it. Not necessarily out of it, but you promised you'd get me through it. So I'm giving it to you. It's your problem now. I'm going to sleep. See you in the morning. Jesus says in verse 31, so instead of worry and anxiety and these things being our ultimate concern, instead, trust God and seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. So instead of job or kids or house or savings account or stock market or whatever, instead of those being ultimate concern, he says, make God's kingdom your ultimate concern. Demand, require, prioritize God's kingdom. Make it your ultimate goal to glorify God with your life. Because, verse 32, don't miss this. Fear not, little flock, for it is God's good pleasure, the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To, to include us in his kingdom, in God's endeavors to push back sin and darkness in our world. That's our purpose in life. And when that is what you care about most, it sets us free. Because everything else is fragile, but God and his kingdom are not. He wants to give us his unshakable kingdom. While everything outside of God's kingdom is fragile and temporary, our savings accounts are fragile. Our jobs are fragile. Our kids are fragile. Our, apparent, our appearance and our health are fragile. But God's kingdom is not. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell could not stop him. 
And God has promised that he will always give us what we need to glorify him in the time that he apportions us to live. That he'll provide us with the sustenance and provisions that we need. That he'll give us his spirit that enables us to fulfill all of our God-given purpose. And that no amount of good or bad circumstances can stand in the way of that. That's the promise that Jesus is making. And so this is why Paul could write in the book of Philippians from a jail cell. And he could say, I've been hungry and I've been well fed. And I've learned the secret of being content in any circumstance. Christ gives me strength. Paul was completely unstoppable. He would tell people about Jesus and they would say, shut up or we'll throw you in jail. And he'd say, I won't, I'm not going to shut up. You can throw me in jail. So they throw him in jail. And then he starts singing songs and telling the jailer about Jesus. And the jailers get converted. And they say, shut up or we'll kill you. And he says, well, then to die is Christ. To live is gain. To die, I get to go be with Jesus. That's also a win. So you can let me out. I'll tell people about Jesus. That's a win. Put me in jail. I'll tell the jailers about Jesus. That's a win. Kill me. I get to go be with Jesus. I also win. In all of these ways, I win. He's unstoppable. There's nothing you can do with this guy. He's completely unstoppable. I was reading a while back a story of a Romanian pastor named, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, Yosef San. I'm sure I'm not saying that right, but he kept getting arrested for talking about Jesus. And he wrote in a book, this is amazing. He says, during an interrogation, I had told an officer who threatened to kill me, sir, let me explain how I see this. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. So if you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. The officer then sent me home. You can't stop a guy like that. I was watching the news a while ago. I saw brothers and sisters in the faith in the Middle East getting their heads chopped off because they refused to renounce Jesus. And God gave them what they needed to glorify him when they needed it in the amount of days that God gave to them to live on the earth. He made good on his promise. And Jesus is saying here that nothing can stop you from fulfilling your purpose on the earth of glorifying God. You are untouchable and invincible when it comes to being able to bring God glory. And he will give you what you need to accomplish that, whatever the circumstances. So there can be steak and ribs on the table. And you smile and you say, man, this is unbelievable. But God is the one who gives us these good gifts, and the best gift that he gives us is himself. It can be mayonnaise sandwiches on the table. And you say, I wish it was steak and ribs. But my real party is coming in heaven, so I'm good. I've already got the bread of life. Pass me a sandwich. Uh, I'll, never, I'll never forget some of the trips that I've been able to take uh, to impoverished places overseas. And if you've been in these kind of environments, you'll immediately connect with what I'm saying. To see people who live in actual poverty is very jolting and eye-opening because of how normalized my life is here and now. My standards are just all thrown off. And one of the things that will humble you down to your bones is watching people who live 
in poverty have more gratitude and joy than you do. I mean, it make you cry. They're more grateful for what they have than I am for anything I've ever had. There have been an environment where you're about to eat a meal with people who live in genuine poverty and they're followers of Jesus and they bow their heads to pray and the amount of gratefulness that just flows out of them. It's like, God, you did it again. You gave us food again. This is unbelievable. It's amazing. All I did was wake up and go to my job and do my work that I could do and somehow we got food on the table again. More grateful for that meal than I've ever been grateful for anything in my life. And you'll see their kids running around with tattered, flat soccer balls, happier than any American child I've ever met. We have the least amount of lack as any culture ever. And yet, all of us somehow really think we lack. It's wild. I think part of it comes from some disobedience. So for example, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, the Bible says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I would argue that a lot of us are reaping the accumulated consequences of refusing to obey that command. So the amount of time and volume of words that we lift up to God about complaint and lack and what we want compared to the amount of time and volume of words we lift up to God about our gratitude and thankfulness for all that he's done for us, I believe are very disproportionate. disproportionate. And I think what is happening is we have a compound effect in our, life, our lives of lack of gratitude and lack of thankfulness and lack of owning before God how blessed we actually are by him. To the point now, all we can see is what we don't have. It's all we're even aware of is what we don't have. So I don't know what your income level is, but I do know that God gave you that money. And whatever you have, God wanted you to have it. That's the calling that he put on your life. God chose you to be rich. He chose for you to be born into the family that you were with the capacities and opportunities that you have in the society that you are so that you would be rich. And he wants you to be grateful for it and not greedy. And he wants you to be generous because you know that he is the one who actually takes care of you. And he wants us to glorify him with what we have. So let's finish the passage here. It gives us a method for actually beginning to change our hearts on all this. Jesus says, Therefore, sell your possessions, give it to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It says where your money is, that's where your heart will find its home. It's what your heart is most attached to. But if you will begin to move your money towards the kingdom of God, something supernaturally powerful happens as God's spirit works in us. We become detached from all the things that we thought we needed that we turn out, we find out we really didn't. There's this healthy detachment from all of our stuff and all of our possessions and a healthy attachment to God as our father. And the method, the practice to use our terminology, that we step into to cultivate that sort of healthy attachment to God, knowing that he's going to provide for us what we need today 
to glorify him because Jesus has died to make us his. The way that we begin to step into that is the practice of generosity. When we give away what we wrongly thought we needed, we begin to realize we didn't need it after all. When we give away what our hearts have become overattached to, we learn that we can thrive without it. And Jesus says our money and our hearts go together. So if you want to start caring more about God's kingdom and in doing so begin to eliminate your worry, Jesus says we've got to transfer our treasure. We've got to start giving it away. We have to practice generosity in our lives. So let me end with a few practical thoughts. First, uh, maybe even before I give a practical thought. Just, uh, I, I know that, that some of you are not Christians and you're here just hanging out and you are getting answers to questions and seeing what it's all about. And we don't want, uh, honestly, the only thing that I would want you to take from today is the fact that Jesus says your worry in life will always be proportional to how fragile your God is. I, in the most loving way I can say this, I hope that thought haunts you until you give your life to Jesus. I hope God uses that reality to run you down and you see it everywhere you turn and you can't shake it. That you are constantly worried about fragile, temporary things and you need an eternal hope to anchor your soul. That's all we want for you. We, we, honestly, you could just disregard everything else for the day. Let me give you a few practical thoughts for those of us who are followers of Jesus here so that we can begin to step into this practice of generosity, enjoying this blood-bought promise of God that he'll give us what we need to bring him glory each and every day, so long as he has us alive on the earth. First thing is uh, generosity needs to be joyful and painful. Joyful and painful. So scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. Our lives are to be lived in response to Jesus' gift of himself on the cross, in response to God, the giver of every good gift, to God who didn't spare his only son, but gave us his only son that we might have eternal life. So our giving should have a joy behind it, motivating it. It should be joyful. It should also be painful, though. Our standard of giving should be that we give until it hurts us. And when I say that, I mean we need to be giving to such a point that our standard of living is impeded by it, that our standard of living has to be lowered because we are giving so much away. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked a ton about this in some of his writings. He always said you can never give an exact percentage of how much you should be giving away. He said the only thing to be sure of is it's probably never enough. <laughs> but he said one marker for sure. A follower of Jesus who makes the same amount as someone who is not a follower of Jesus should have a lower standard of living than that person because they are giving money away to the point they cannot spend it all on themselves. So that's a good check. If someone who's not a Christian makes the same amount as you, you should have a noticeably lower standard of living than they do because of what you are giving away and you cannot spend it on yourself. That's a good check. So it needs to be joyful, but it also needs to be painful. And then the next thing, just real practical to wrap us up, uh, it needs to be planned and it needs to be spontaneous. Planned and spontaneous. If you only operate in generosity, with spontaneity, then you're going to find over time you give away less than overall uh, if you had a plan for it. Just a practical reality. Scripture even says to, to plan to give away some in keeping with your income each month. That's in 1 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. But if you only give away what you plan, uh, then it's possible for control to be the driving force in your life instead of God's Spirit. And you begin to shut down compassion 
for situations that were unplanned by you where a need is presented to you. And you begin to stifle the work of God's Spirit, prompting you to give. So you need planned and you need spontaneous. So here's how my family does it. This might be helpful. Uh, we set aside uh, 10% of our income each month. That just immediately goes to our church. Um, that's actually something that all of our members have agreed to so that our church has the funding that we need to operate. And the way that we do it is that money is out of our account first before we decide what kind of house we can own, cars, uh, standard of living stuff. That money is gone. That goes first. We don't do anything before we do that. And then what we try to do is we actually set a separate category in our budget so that we can keep up with it that we just mark as generosity. And that's just over there as reserve for needs as they come up that allows us to be spontaneous. So when we're coming across good causes, people who are in need, we actually have money that's set aside so that we can give to that as extra generosity. And that helps us stay sensitive to needs that are right in front of us that come up that we didn't plan for, but also make sure that we're planning and consistent with, with our giving. So I don't know if those will be of, helpful, of, uh, of help to you as we try to step into these practices. Um, but uh, here, here, just as a reminder, is the, is, uh, the summation of what Jesus has taught us here. He says that God's, God's promise of freedom is available for all of us. And if we want to become countercultural, free non-anxious presences in the world, compelling disciples of Jesus, then generosity has to be a bedrock discipline. It's the only path that gets us there. So we have to have the trust and the courage to walk in it. So let me pray. And what we do uh, after we have a time of teaching is we try to have a time of response, just some space where we can actually pray and go to God with this stuff. So I don't know what stands out to you and what you might need to think through. It could be something practical. It could be something deeper. Maybe, maybe you have made something ultimate in your life that is way too fragile and way too temporary, and you need to deal with God on that. Um, maybe you need to, to rest and reflect on the fact that God has been so generous to us, not just through his son, but also in all the blessings that we experience all day, every day that are so easy to take for granted. Um, maybe there needs to be some some repentance, some confession. We provide some space for you to just think and reflect and pray, and we'll sing together, and we'll take communion together when you're ready. So let me pray for us, and we'll transition to a time that we can respond. Um, Jesus, thank you for, uh, for these beautiful promises. Thank you that it is true, God, that you will give us what we need to be able to glorify you in the time that you have us on the earth that we can rest in that. Jesus, you died to secure that for us. So God, would you begin to uproot all of our discontentment and all of our worry and all of our anxiousness and all of our focus on what we think we lack. Help us to be grateful for all that we have and for a settled spirit to begin to reside in us. God, would you continue to more and more just make this the culture of our church that we are always increasingly generous, just open-handed and free with our stuff. Protect us, Lord, from our hearts being overly attached to our possessions and to our things. God, would you just now, as we seek to respond, give us some clarity, Lord, would you send your spirit to work in our midst to help us see ourselves more clearly, to be aware of where we might need to move, where we need to repent, what conversations we might need to have, what planning and organizing we might need to do. I don't know what our steps are, Lord, but would you just lead us, help us to each move towards you just a bit today in faithfulness and in repentance. And we ask this for your glory and our good. Amen.